Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome everyone. Beautiful early summer eve here in Kingston with a nice cool breeze coming across Lake Ontario tonight. So get in your comfy chair, get the coffee going, get the tea going or a beverage of choice. Take this time for yourself. You've worked hard like crazy all week. Kick back and relax. This one's for you. Now the stars are beginning to appear tonight and I can't help but think of life on this planet and if there's life out there. It would be an awful waste of space, as they say, if we were indeed alone in the universe. And God forbid that we humans are the most intelligent species in the universe because, I mean, let's face it, folks, for the first time ever, we've had the ability to feed children on the planet. Everybody gets fed and we choose not to do it, but we still shoot each other's butts off. Very, very bizarre. There was one split second, however, when the world stopped hating each other and we all looked up. That was at 10.56 p.m. when Neil Armstrong took the first step on the moon and said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Now the challenge to unite the world in a common cause of putting a person on the moon came earlier. It came from none other than President John F. Kennedy when he thundered in a speech, we choose to go to the moon. My New England accent isn't good, folks, but I'll do my best. We choose to go to the moon. My Canadian accent, however, is really good about. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept and we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall go to the moon 240,000 miles away, then we must be bold. That, of course, was from his famous moon speech of September 12, 1962, which Ted Sorensen, nope, just throwing that in. Larry, welcome to the show, my friend. Welcome back. Now, yesterday was May 29th, 2017. A hundred years previous, JFK was born. Can we talk a little bit about the legacy of JFK and what that means today? I wish we could talk more about it in terms of actually being in place today. I say that because your, your remark about going to the moon reminds me that my nation's changed its overall goal from going to the moon to building a wall. Yeah. Well, yeah, it has. There's no question about that. Times have changed. Is that for the better or for the worse? I'm going worse. Okay. Would you like to see perhaps the people that are in power today study some of the past and look for precedents that JFK brought? If you had to pick one thing that JFK brought to the world that the world had never seen before, what would that be? I know what it is for me. For me, I think it would be his pragmatism. JFK was our first president and one of our few presidents to even understand the concept of neutrality. And that allowed him to deal with the rest of the world in a fashion that we have real troubles with. And for me, it's hope. Without question, it's hope. Now, 
Larry, just a few weeks ago, we lost one of our very, very best friends, Sherry Feaster. Sherry Feaster, folks, has been on this show before. You'll be able to find her show in the archives, or just simply Google Sherry Feaster Night Fright Show, and that'll come up. You can watch those shows for free. Now, Sherry, folks, is renowned not only because she was plucky and full of energy, but she brought real science to the Kennedy assassination like never before. She's a crime scene investigator. And she found, by doing crime scene investigative techniques, 21st century forensics, in other words, she found a frontal shot. But we've lost her. And I feel really, really saddened by this because she was a close friend. Larry, could you please say a few words about Sherry? Oh, yeah, Sherry. One of the things I most admire about Sherry is that she she is an extremely brave person. We we see very few people that in and Brandon, you know, in the JFK arena who who are professionals who are ever willing to risk their professional status. And Sherry was never willing to back down from a problem. And once she realized that, she put her entire career, her credentials as a professional forensic forensic expert on the line and faced up and actively engaged in the problem. And that's that's something very unique. And I'll tell you how she touched my lives, folks. When I started this show back in 2008, holy cow, it's a long time ago. In November, I did a series of specials on the JFK assassination. And Larry came on, actually. You were one of the first guests. And Sherry was one of the first guests. And I was always on the cusp. Did Oswald do it? Did Oswald not do it? Was it a concern? I was looking at it more from, I guess you could say, an entertainment value rather than an actual scientific value. Then Sherry came on the show with her science and proved to me for the very first time that it was indeed a conspiracy. Why? Because there was two shooters, and she proved that beyond the shadow of a doubt. And I remember going home and shaking, absolutely shaking, because I realized that the government had lied and all those rumors were true, that there was a cover-up in place and the government had lied. And up to that point, it never really, it was a movie, it was a JFK movie, and this brought it right to the forefront and very real. Then, several years ago, Sherry called me up and she said, Brent, we want you to do a book for Lancer. And that really touched my heart. And she said, we want you to do it because you're family, you're part of the community. And God bless you, Sherry, wherever you are right now. I thank you so much for that because it was a great achievement in my life and it could not have happened without your input. And um, we will never forget you. We will always remember you, Sherry. Bless you. Okay, let's start the show now. I'm going to read some quotes here about two politicians and what they had to say about space. The first from Secretary Hillary Clinton during a December 2015 campaign stop in New Hampshire. The Conway Daily Sun newspaper asked Hillary Clinton, have we been visited by extraterrestrials? Now, her response was somewhat unexpected, to put it mildly, because as a politician, instead of distancing herself and dismissing the issue and lumping all UFO sightings into the realms of quackery, this is her quote as she responded, I think we may have been visited already. We don't know for sure. Campaign manager John Podesta has made me personally pledge we are going to get the information out one way or another. Now, a few weeks later, she was on Jimmy Kimmel Live and asked a about UFOs once again. 
and on full network television, she made the following statement. I would like to go into those files, ETs, and hopefully make as much of that public as possible, she said. If there's nothing there, let's tell people there's nothing there. If there's something there, unless it's a threat to national security, I think we ought to share it with the public. Now, fast forward again. Jimmy Kimmel once again asked President George W. Bush about UFOs. Bush immediately replied, maybe. Then he told Kimmel, you know, it's funny. My daughters asked me the very same question. Now, however, when Kimmel pushed Bush, now that you're out of office, you can do anything you want, right? Bush replied, true, but I'm not going to tell you anything. So we're left with this question. Are they just pulling our legs? Are they not pulling our legs? It would seem we were on the cusp at that time, folks. The cusp of full disclosure, but disclosure of exactly what? Finally, the confirmation that we've been visited by extraterrestrials or been victims of deception, yet again, from the national security state. Our topic for tonight is a new book that examines just how much we have been led astray by the forces that be more cover-ups and disinformation. In the new book, Unidentified, the National Security Intelligence Problem of UFOs. The author and our guest tonight, Larry Hancock, is the renowned national security intelligence researcher um, that we all come to know and love. He's been on the show many times. A brief background about Larry. Fans of the show will know that Larry is a heavy hitter in the JFK research community. Now, everybody knows about Larry's book, Someone Would Have Talked, as a mainstay on the shelves of all serious JFK researchers. And anyone who's interested at all in the Kennedy assassination, I would highly recommend this book. Now, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the life and time of Dr. Martin Luther King. We had a show exactly on the day Dr. King was assassinated, April 4th, 1968. Once again, just Google Larry Hancock, Night Fright Show, and all those shows that I've just mentioned will come up because we've had him on for each and every book. When Larry came on with fellow researcher and author Stuart Wexler to discuss their book about Dr. King, The Awful Grace of God. By the way, folks, all those shows, once again, just Google Larry Hancock, Night Fright Show, and all those shows will pop up. They're all in a playlist. Okay, now i got to go into this just for two minutes. I know it's a long preamble tonight, but I have to do this as well. There's been an apocalypse on YouTube. Everybody has probably heard the rumors, but here's essentially what happened. They found a bunch of videos that, uncomplimentary videos, if you will, with ads running under them. So there was 0.0000.1% of the videos on YouTube were found to have this problem. So in a knee-jerk reaction, so we're told, because I have my questions about what's really going on behind the scenes, the advertisers pulled the ads off all the videos on YouTube. So, as you know, YouTube is a place where millions of people can earn a living. And I'm talking people that make an income as low as a barista all the way to multimillionaires. And there's millions of people out there doing that, including me. No, I'm not a multimillionaire. I would follow in a couple of hundred bucks a month. But it was enough to keep this show going. It's not anymore. So the advertisers had this knee-jerk reaction, YouTube, to follow suit, because everybody, you know, two knee-jerk reactions don't cancel each other, folks. They just make two knee-jerk reactions. They had a knee-jerk reaction. Anything they deemed controversial 
You ready for this? Here's a list of some of the stuff. Anything to do with the Second World War, First World War. I even had an interview with Jody Williams, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Blocked from YouTube because she talked about landmines. That's what she won the Nobel Peace Prize for. Can you believe this? But a cat video, folks, no problem. A makeup video, God knows I could use one, no problem. A gaming video, no problem. Anything with thought or alternative ideas has been blocked by YouTube. This show now has a national income of zero. If this show is going to survive, there's only one way for that to happen, and that's through your support. So I would urge you to go to our website, www.nightfrightshow.com. Please make a donation. You can donate as low as a dollar a month. A dollar a month, folks. If you decide to donate $2 a month, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you even more, but not only will you help us stay on air and have great shows like this, but I'll send you a documentary of Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service agent, handpicked by JFK himself, for free. Two bucks a month will get you that. Please, www.nightfrightshow.com, or quite simply, quite honestly, this show will disappear. It cannot operate on a zero budget. It's impossible. I thank you for your help in advance. Okay, Larry, sorry for that long preamble tonight. I'm going to ask you a question I've never asked you before, my friend. Larry, have you ever seen a UFO? I have certainly seen unidentified flying objects. Absolutely. Uh, but you've wow. got to remember, You're I've been an I've been an amateur astronomer since I was about eight years old and I'm turning 70 now, so I've been looking a lot, but I should qualify that. There, as you'll see, and if you read the book, that simply literally means it was a flying object I couldn't identify. I saw a lot of strange, unconventional objects, everything from jets passing by with afterburners on to high-altitude balloons, uh, the classic uh, plastic clothes bag with a candle in it. Seen all of those, but I have I have seen a few things at a distance at night that I still couldn't identify. The nighttime objects are always the most difficult. Yeah, let me extend that question. Then, do you believe in the possibilities of extraterrestrials? And as another extension on that one, do you think they're visiting us? Oh, I, I think it would be it would be totally unrealistic not to assume that there was life and intelligence life, considering how many millions of planets that we are now tracking, how many solar systems we're tracking, and how many hundreds of planets that we're coming up with almost every year. Uh, it would just it would be outrageous if there wasn't someone out there. Uh, as far as visiting us. I, I will tell you this, Brent, and I think I I really couldn't have given you an answer until I did the research on this book and wrote this book. Someone is not just visiting us, but someone has some very special interest in us. I can't tell you who they are. I can't tell you. I can't identify them. I can't tell you if they're extraterrestrial, extra, extra dimensional, extra time, whatever. 
somebody is here that's different. Oh, my God. I was not expecting this from you tonight, Larry. See, folks, Larry's book has not come out yet, and I haven't had a chance to read it. And I know Larry's background. He's as, you know, as grounded. He always tells me, Brent, I'm as grounded in a conservative uh, researcher as you're ever going to find. For Larry to say this, I've got goosebumps, buddy. <laughs> Holy yeah, moly. I and when you consider some of the implications, I, I, and that's why I'm trying to focus this, this, my book focused strictly on the national security question. And you went back to uh, Hillary Clinton and to Bush and some of those remarks about, you know, well, I'd be happy to tell you about this unless there was a national security implication. Well, as it turns out, there are some national security implications but to some extent, they're ones that we've never faced up to. Um, it's not that this wasn't investigated. It's not that people were not very concerned. The bottom line is it proved to be a national security question that couldn't be dealt with through any of the conventional practices. And when you run up against a problem like that, you've got two choices. One is to admit that you're defeated, and the other is just to walk away and ignore it. I don't know. You're creeping me out now. I'm kind of thinking the second answer might be the best way to, best way to proceed with this. Okay, let me... Well, let me... yeah. And, uh, Go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't... I will say... And you're right, Brent. I am I'm a conservative guy. I'm a natural skeptic. I'm probably the most conservative conspiracy nut that you're ever going to run into. Um, and, and I don't, I'm very hard to please. And you will see a lot of things that UFO folks talk about and write about that are not in this book because this folk, this book has been so tightly focused on military intelligence, uh, military and security observations on the national security question. If, if I hadn't have been able to focus like this, I prob probably would not be seeing what I saw. Uh, but once you do that, you find out that there is a ton of data available that supports this view. It's been released. There are some fantastic historical researchers who have been doing FOIA, that have been digging up uh, Air Force files and documents and incident reports. And uh, I mean, the basic thing is there. The problem was what you see when you dig into what these people have identified and surfaced is that they couldn't deal with it. And when somebody at Malmstrom Air Force Base, a SAC base, reports somebody penetrating all their security systems and hovering over the atomic missile and bomb dumps, what are you going to say? Um, well, are you really going to say right there because you must be clairvoyant as well, Larry. Now I'm finding out more about you because that was my very first topic to bring up was the Maelstrom Air Force Base incident. And I want to bring this one up because Robert Salas was on the show telling this in his own words. And he was one of those guys, folks, that was responsible deep down in the bunker to release the missile. So just let me tell you this basic story. On March 1967, Robert Salas, second-in-command in a nuclear-proof missile bunker 60 feet below the surface. Topside, folks, the guards were frantic. 
calling down to him to tell him that unidentified lights were rapidly approaching in the skies over Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana. Nuclear weapons, right? The next call told him they had weapons drawn and shots fired at a huge disc hovering over the guard post. Suddenly, 10 nuclear missiles Salas was responsible for went offline. 10 nuclear missiles went offline in the middle of the Cold War in 67. The next event sends chills. Proximity alerts sounded that someone or something had entered the missile silos. So who were, what was the true intention of these alien invaders? Now, that's terrifying, Larry, to think that we would not have control over the launch sequence or the launching of nuclear weapons, that somebody had circumvented all those safety measures and perhaps could have launched them themselves. What did you find out well, about this one? I think what's important there is uh, that we can, and, and again, you know me, I go back to the documents because of issues with oral histories and, and memories and everything. I always want some corroboration. Well, some folks have managed to locate a series of not just SAC, but NORAD reports that actually some of the verbiage in those reports, as clinical as it is, talk about the fact that in, in that incident and in other incidents at SAC Northern Tier Bases in the same time frame, they attempted to deploy Air Force helicopters, National Guard helicopters, F-16s, and they could not successfully engage any of the intrusions that occurred right over missile silos or over the SAC bomb dumps. And in the instance you're talking about, the report confirms that they had a perimeter breach. The outside fence perimeter gate was breached. The inside perimeter gate was breached. And the lock system was actually removed. Now, at that point in time, you've got two alternatives because we don't know anymore. We know we know enough to confirm that it was really bad. So you're left with two alternatives. Could have been your aliens or somebody else that was interested, or it could have been a Russian Spasnets team that demonstrated they could get into one of our nuclear silos anytime they wanted to. Both of those are equally unpleasant. Can you talk about the Russian one? Let's keep it grounded for now, and then we'll go to the UFO one right after. Grounded for yeah. now. You know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Some of this, some of these incidents were occurring at a, a time of high tension between the U.S. and Russia. And it, it is known now that Russia spent a lot of time. This is from doc, actual KGB and other documents that were released at the end of the Cold War. They had deployed not only base watchers, but they had made rage. They had cached weapons and explosives or sabotage. They deployed their special forces teams undercover. Uh, all of that was in place in the event of war. I mean, it's not that they weren't going to do it unless they decided to go to war, but all of those things were in place. And obviously, a demonstration like we're talking about, the ability to penetrate all normal security measures and actually enter a missile silo complex is a real intimidating message. So this uh, this clearly was a message from someone. 
this was not just a nat- you know, natural phenomenon at work. There's some messaging going on here, and it's just a question of who's sending the message. A lot of people I can hear right now, especially the younger folk, are, are simply going to say, oh, it's just a computer hack. Not so fast, folks. How was it not a computer <laughs> not, hack? Not when you break through two gates and remove an entire security ma- security interlock system and go off with it. <laughs> this is not a computer hack. This is not software-driven. And just for reference there, that's one of the reasons we've kept a lot of our technology with the missile silos back in the 50s and 60s because that was a lot more mechanical and a lot more fail-safe than totally data-driven systems. Yeah, we know today that things can be hacked just like that. We know the North uh, Koreans have been hacked, the Canadians have been hacked, everybody's been hacked. And this goes on and on and on and on. The malware is out there to do that. This is shocking to me, Larry. This is opening up a whole new, you know, I've got all my notes sitting here in front of me. Two days of studious work. You know, keeping my feet on the ground. Okay, let's go to the UFOs now. You know, they describe this flying saucer, and, uh, you know, it's pretty graphic the way they describe it. They're shooting at this thing. My God, they've got to account for every bullet shot, right? They're in the military. They do have to account for these things, but then you get into, you get into the reporting structure, and... One of the things I spend a great deal of time doing in the book is trying to detail out how the command and control structure works, how reports are generated, when reports are generated. I mean, was that flight of missiles going offline reported? It absolutely was. There is no doubt that it was reported. We see the reports. We actually have the tech reports. It's explained as an electrical glitch. Okay, so it's it's not that they're not reported. It depends on how you deal with those reports. And in, Well, I in suspect the, that an electrical glitch, sorry to interrupt you, is much better than swamp gas 60 feet underneath the ground. <laughs> sorry for that. It, it is indeed. And it, But, for example, okay, during this northern tier series of incidents that I'm talking about, we have a whole series of actually alert messages that were generated by NORAD and SAC, essentially putting... SAC bases all across the northern, the Canadian border on high alert for aerial objects. But again, it depends on how you choice parse the wording. The actual defense alert condition that they mention in those reports is a helicopter-borne assault. Interesting. Interesting. And was there any reports of what those helicopter pilots saw in the sky that night? You see, I'm getting no, nitpicky because they left that they, out, right? They left that out, and in, in uh. several of these events, you have you have the actual reports coming from the people on the base. Okay, and in one of the incidents, the people on the base uh, report something passing over one of the gates, moving towards the SAC bomb uh, storage area, and. All of the people describe it in terms totally unlike a helicopter. I mean, they're, they're close to it. They're just sitting there watching it hundreds of feet away, and they're not describing a helicopter. But the reports continue to talk about unknown and unidentified helicopters. What do you think? Well, I'm, obviously, do there's you have a, a I, again, I, we'd, we'd really have to go back through this. I, I think the important thing is this doesn't start at that point in time. 
this is a story that goes all the way back to World War II, to 1945, 1946, 47. The actual atomic warfare complex intrusions begin in 1947 and 1948. What you see in these later things at the SAC bases is simple, simply continuity of something that had been going on for decades. Whoever, whatever is displaying this interest was totally focused on the American atomic warfare complex. Uh, they Did began... Do you know if Russia was experiencing the same type of thing? And Well, wait a second. I, I've got to date myself correctly. They hadn't started their nuclear program then. So it was really had, only the United States, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, and if, if you were... And where this really starts, and obviously it starts at the atomic weapons facilities, it, it starts... The first places to really generate these observations are Los Alamos and Sandia Base in New Mexico, where the bombs are being designed and assembled. That goes on for a couple of years. Then things shift, and it shifts to the bomb storage areas, the Manzano complex outside of Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, Colleen Base in Texas, which is one of the first distributed atomic bomb storage sites, someone essentially follows those things they, from construction to dispersal. And then you go through a couple of different phases. Then they get followed all the way out to the SAC bases. We start seeing those incidents at missile complexes. We start seeing those incidents at SAC storage dumps on SAC air bases. And it, when that happens, all those incidents at Hanford and Oak Ridge and Sandia Bay, stop. It's as if whatever this interest is, it's following the weapons. And in particular, it's following the megaton class hydrogen weapons. Okay, you had mentioned New Mexico, and you know where I got to go right now then because of that. <laughs> now, you brought it up, not me. <laughs> Larry was dead set, not dead set against, but he said, oh, let's not waste our time on Roswell. July 4th, 19, look, he's hiding now. July 4th, 1947, a UFO is reported to have crashed in New Mexico, Roswell. Conflicting stories have emerged about UFOs, weather balloons, alien autopsies, debris and body, and transported to Wright-Patterson. There's even a Curtis LeMay quote warning Barry Goldwater, and I quote, I called Curtis LeMay, who was the head of SAC later on in the 50s and in the early 60s, and we can talk some more about that because he ties in with the Kennedy assassination as well. And I said, General, I know we have a room at Wright-Patterson where you put all the secret stuff. Could I go in there? I never heard General LeMay get mad, but he got madder than hell at me, cursed me out, and said, don't ever ask me that question again. And no, you cannot go there. What the heck is that about? Well, first of all, you've got to remember that Wright-Patterson at that point in time did have rooms like that. Those rooms were primarily reserved to collect foreign aircraft and rocket materials, and that's where Air Force technical intelligence was. And nobody 
civilian or not, without the right compartmentalized access code, is going to get into that, whether they're looking at a MiG-19, a MiG-23, a, I mean, you, you know, Brent, we did all sorts of really intriguing things to actually steal Russian weapons out from under their noses and take them there to be examined. You don't have to be talking about alien spacecraft to get that quote. Uh, and, and you've got to remember that in his position, LeMay had been, for a period of time, director of Air Force technology. And if, uh, in, in, in his role and in his position, you know, I can imagine him saying that. It's like, we're not going to let you in there. We don't let anybody in there. They don't let me in there. I'm just wondering when he responded if he even took a cigar out of his mouth. Anyways, Larry, I'm afraid to ask you. Most likely not. Okay. I'm terrified to ask you this next question. You know, there was all this talk about alien bodies and stuff in Area 51. Because you you shot, I'm I'm rattled now. You know that, right? You know you've rattled me big time because I wasn't expecting this from you, my friend. Was there any aliens really? Alien bodies or anything like that found at Roswell? Was, was this the real deal then, from, according to your research? I, let me do this. I, in this particular question, I'm going to defer to the fellow who I feel has the best grip on that subject at this point in time, and that's Kevin Randall. And his new book, which I'm looking at now, Roswell in the 21st Century, I think really presents the best picture of that. And in short, what Randall says is something crashed, Pieces were recovered, and to this point in time, we really don't know what it was. The Air Force, for some reason, chose to obfuscate to to whatever, uh, and we really don't know. And I think I think Randall has a very accurate view of that. It has become so distorted by by hoaxes and oral histories that turned out not to be true and documents that turned out to be forged. Um, what we do know, and, and this is interesting, I think you'll find this interesting, the best anyone ever said contemporaneously was that bits and pieces of metallic-type material, uh, wood-like spars, bits and pieces of something were collected, put in boxes, and shipped off. And yeah, there was talk of uh, some kind of metal that you could squish up in your hand and it would just spring open again. But I can give you from that same period of time, 1947 through 1950, three other incidents that we know of and are actually documented of UFO crash material being recovered and a, a scientifically examined in laboratories. In fact, at the DuPont Materials Laboratory. Um, and that's, that's recorded. And that's actually much more interesting to me than those bits and pieces because those reports say that the materials discovered were very similar to the uh, linings, materials cases, uh, basically to something that was described at the time as a remotely launched, self-guided, self-destroying projectile. The okay. fascinating thing is all of that material was provided to the Air Force investigations, 
and due to compartmentalization, internal politics, and whatever, it was never treated seriously. Mm-hmm. What we don't know about Roswell, we do know about these other things, which were very real and very examined in great detail and even characterized. Larry, was was there a cover-up put in place in the same sense that there was a cover-up put in place right after Kennedy, the Kennedy assassination? Um, I suspect the Kennedy assassination cover-up was probably a little bit more uh, designed before the fact, if you will, rather than this one. This one seems to be they were pulling rabbits out of their hat trying to control information. What was it, in your opinion, that really crashed there? And why the cover-up and why the UFO story came out? Disinformation? Misinformation? Oh, in Roswell? Um, I, I think, first of all, you've got to remember, this was this was not unique. There were several other incidents of hoaxes and crashes and recoveries. And there are other incidents of Air Force bases issuing statements like this. Having Roswell issue a statement is not that unique. Okay. Uh, it, at that point in time, there was no coordinated Air Force investigation. If you're talking about organization, there was actually, there was no Air Force. There was an Army Air Force. There was no official project to investigate UFOs. There were no people designed specifically to look into them. Basically, if somebody came up with something, they would run to the closest Air Force base, and the PR guy would generally say something humorous because the Air Force was treating it humorously because it was a public relations problem. Um, This occurred, and I, I know I'm laboring this, This occurred at a point in time when we had, after World War II, essentially taken apart our entire air defense network. The Air Force had very few fighter planes. It had no radar network domestically. It had basically nothing to defend against a Russian attack at a point in time when the most senior people in government were expecting a Russian attack at any minute. So the last thing you wanted, were going to hear was any explanation or any acceptance of the fact that the UFOs were anything other than humorous or hoaxes or misidentifications. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. Another question I'm going to ask you with trepidation, because I'm afraid this one may be true, too, and I always thought this was ludicrous. JFK, November 12, 1963, that famous memo to the CIA supposedly asking the CIA for all related UFO files. Now, everybody, it seems, that doesn't know much about the JFK case always cites that, especially from the UFO community cites that as proof that Kennedy was killed because he was about to reveal the truth, if you will, about UFOs. So is there, everybody, is that everybody that saw the TV series Dark Skies raised their hand, loved it. I mean, it had JFK, aliens, RFK fighting back. It was great. But uh, no, Brent, I don't see any... At, at that point in time, quite frankly, JFK was interested in the Moon Project, He was actually interested in talking about the Russians in regard to the the moon project. And one of the things he was very sensitive about, we don't know. We can't get inside the man's head. But he was very interested in 
what was an acceptable starting point. And I, I will tell you, up to that point in time, there were still concerns, as there had been from the very beginning, that UFOs were a Soviet psychological warfare campaign. Uh, from August 1947, for a decade, the first place, the only first place anybody ever expressed fears and concerns in official documents is about the fact that A, these might be Soviet reconnaissance devices, or B, Soviet psychological warfare devices. Now, if they had been, and you were going to start talking to the Soviets about joint space activities, it would be a good thing to know all that. Okay, I always thought it was because this was after, of course, the famous Cuban Missile Crisis, which took place in uh, 62 October. I always thought it was because he was nervous that the Soviets might think that it was some kind of sneak attack if they got a UFO on their radar screen, and then they would be compelled, if you will, to retaliate. I always thought he was a little bit nervous about that kind of scenario taking place. Is that too far a stretch? I, I don't. That, that's, like I say, I can't get inside of his head. That was, I offered one option. That could be another. He he was, he wanted to establish some level of detente so that he could talk with the Russians. Okay. That would have been, that would have been, could have been a very logical part of it. It's like, you know, are we scaring them? Hmm. You know, are we doing something to make them nervous? You know, what what do they, we think they're they may be behind UFOs? Do they think we're behind UFOs? <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. You know, Stanton Friedman was on the show. I never thought I'd bring his name up when I had Larry Hancock on the show because Larry, you know, he like I said, he's very conservative. Does national security stuff? Stanton is the guy to go to for UFO stuff in terms of Roswell and things like that. He's kind of the granddaddy of it all. And um, but Stanton was on, and I asked him about this very same memo, and he said he thinks it's probably a fake memo. What's your take on it? I, my th that's what I was going to say to you from the beginning. My I would agree with Stanton on that. I would probably he and I would have to disagree about the entire series of Majestic 12 Aquarius documents because I pretty much think that's all a DIA disinformation project. Um, but I, I think it could, I think it is probably most likely fake. If it's real, I would go with either your response or my response as to what it meant to JFK. So but nothing to do with this assassination. Anything in the Majestic series, I've got to say, I, I, I just don't count. I, I think it's been deconstructed and debunked. Okay. Now, can you give, just give an overview of Majestic 12, what it was? It was supposed to be from Truman's White House, and please, if you wouldn't mind. There are a whole series of documents that begin to be anonymously released, not from the government. Now, we need to separate this. This is not like the documents that we're getting through FOIA, Freedom of Information. It's not like the history documents. These are things that arrived in brown paper rack packages, you know, at somebody's post office box or door. They're all anonymous, and they claim to describe a covert, underground, secret alien contact investigation process. It's not just, it's not as simple. It grows over a period of time. At first, it's, we know there are aliens behind UFOs, and then 
we actually have recovered bodies and then we've made contact with them. And if you follow it on down the years, you end up in a, in a place where we have extraterrestrial diplomatic relations with them and we're sacrificing humans as part of the deal. And that's Majestic 12 itself was supposed to be the original body of individuals that were classified as sort of a board of directors over this project to, to deal with alien contact. Another one of those rumors with the following president, Ike Eisenhower. Now, Ike is supposed to have met, of course, on various Air Force's bases. He was supposed to be out playing golf, but then he was at a dentist. But apparently he was really meeting with the aliens. I always have, I, yes, I'm familiar with that. I, I, You will not find that in the book. I mean, what can I tell you? Um, no, don't think it happened. Uh, might Eisenhower have been taken to Muroc to look at some secret weapons developments, aircraft developments? Absolutely. And I will tell you this, there is absolutely no doubt that both the military and the CIA have used UFOs and aliens as disinformation covers all the way back to the late 1940s. Uh, why, why is that, Larry? What was the advantage for them to do that? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfect cover. If you're doing something with your own technology, let's put it this way. Basically, if you're doing something in aerospace, first it's aircraft, then it's rockets and missiles, whatever kind of development that you're doing, it's really hard to totally disguise it. You know, you're flying these things, you're launching these things. People are going to see it. They're going to talk about it. Uh, they're going to get interested in it. And they're, it's going to become public information. Now, America is greatly exposed by the fact that people talk about things they see and hear. That did not happen in the Soviet Union, nor did it make it into the press in the Soviet Union. Or were there fan clubs in the Soviet Union and study groups that would go out looking to collect this type of information? And one of the very first concerns you find it in reports is that the Soviets very well could use UFO reports and UFO interest groups as collection points for information. They would be collecting point information on our technology development, and they would be able to Okay, this is not. This is clearly not aliens. This is something the Americans are testing at this speed and at this altitude and with this capabilities. And that was a serious counterintelligence concern because, again, along the line, especially Air Force security folks and later the DIA actually tracked Soviet agents contacting American UFO groups. So what do you do to fight this? The best way you counter it is you start planting totally unreasonable information to disrupt everything to so that nobody can tell what's real from what's false. You want to make it as obtuse and complex and unfathomable as possible so the Russians really can't extract the real information. That was oh, a long-winded answer. That was a perfect answer. Now, you've just done a great segue into Area 51 in Groom Lake. Once again, I know this is probably not where you thought we were going to go tonight, but I just thought, you know, because I had the uh, ex-Canadian defense minister on, Paul Hellyer, 
And he was telling me Canada had developed this cutting-edge airplane called the Avro Arrow in the late 1950s that the conservative government here nixed because it was costing too much money for them, they felt. These planes, there was only five of them made. These planes were supposed to have been dismantled, destroyed, blueprints ripped up and everything. He says there's one of these things sitting at Area 51. I was just wondering, have you looked into any, is there any documentation at all? I guess it's very tough to try and figure out what's going on at Area 51 in Groom Lake. Now, in all fairness, we do know that the U-2 spy plane was developed there in the early 50s. Is this basically what it is? It's, it's just a place to test cutting-edge yes. uh, new technology? Ab absolutely right. And it doesn't surprise me at all that the, a copy of the Arrow... I mean, that test facility it focuses on three different areas. It focuses on ultra-high speed supersonics, which would put the aircraft in that... and, and they often profile aircraft. They, they fly older aircraft. As a matter of fact, they still have uh, a 117 stealth fighter bomber there that okay. they operate to generate comparable signatures and radar signatures to judge new self-developments. So they have baseline devices. Quite frankly, they also had Soviet aircraft. Anything, anything that we could collect in terms of Soviet fighters there so we could baseline and compare them. Stealth, stealth was developed at Area 51, but before that, it was the, it's always been since, well, since the early 60s. Earlier, it was an atomic test area, or that general area of Nevada was, but that base was established to develop the U-2 and the SR-71, uh, high altitude, for the U-2, high speed for the SR-71, it's it's where our cutting edge technology is, is tested. So no real surprise that it's highly secure. And again, I, I have no doubt, and actually there's, there's some pretty good information floating around to say that periodically um, Air Force Security and DIA will play games by by rigging up some stuff that looks strange and flying it and letting all the watchers around Area 51 see it. You got a That's counterintelligence. That's no worries. The book is called Unidentified, the National Security Intelligence Problem of UFOs. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I want to get this in before, before um, the music starts, and I will ask Larry one last question afterwards. Next week is the anniversary of Bobby Kennedy's uh, death. He passed away on June 6th. Larry is coming back on with Stuart, and we're going to do a whole celebration of Bobby Kennedy that night. Not just talk about the assassination, but his legacy, what he stood for, what the possibilities, what happened, what were the consequences after he passed away, what happened to the country, to the world. I would argue, after he passed away. So that's going to be next Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. You certainly do not want to miss that. It's going to be just as electrifying as Larry always is, as he is tonight. Now, the other thing I want to mention, Larry, we're at a time we didn't even get to the Washington sightings. Will ah. you please come back on in, in July? Oh, absolutely. Be oh, it'll be to. so much fun to have you back on. Right in the middle of the summer, the perfect night for this type of stuff. And you have rattled me, my friend. <laughs> Oh, if you think you're worried, if you think you're worried now, just wait. Oh my goodness me! Okay.
I wanted to ask you this. Are there or were there any back-channel communications between the Soviets and NATO and the West saying, you know, we've got this really weird stuff going on over here in Russia, and you've got this really weird stuff going on over... It's not us, it's not you. It's got to be something else, as I point to the sky. Is there any communication? Is there any covert or something underground? Is there any communication flying back and forth for this? Is there any study group, at least? I can't see any sign of that, Brent, and neither some have some more experienced people that I am in the Pentagon actually seen any sign of that. Uh, what, what you have to cope with, though, is there's a certain amount of compartmentalization even between U.S. agencies and services. What, what we see and what I see is a tremendous compartmentalization of, of relevant information inside the U.S., not sharing it because it's security compartmentalized. It's not like an alien secret. It's just we don't let people know about different projects and different programs. So there's no central source in the U.S., much less sharing with anybody else. That that was one of the problems, the relationship between... Damn, I knew it was going to happen. That's why I wanted to get that in beforehand. Larry, thank you so much, as always. My best to you and your wife. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and Stuart right here next week, folks. We're going to be talking about Bobby Kennedy. I'm Brent Holland. See you all next time.